Matthew 9 and verse 27. Let's hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the districts. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marvelled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father God, we we pray with the psalmist again that uh, the words of uh, my mouth, the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, uh, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. So speak to us and enable us to hear, unstop our deaf ears, open our blind eyes, we pray, that we might see Christ. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, in many ways this morning, uh, at the end of chapter 9, we get to the end of a, a section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, the chapters weren't there originally, uh, so Matthew didn't write chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but, but it does seem that he structures his Gospel quite carefully. When you read the Gospel accounts, we, we mustn't think that it, they're just a kind of newspaper report of what happened, as if Matthew or anyone else was sitting there writing down everything that Jesus did. No, they're carefully chosen snapshots, if you like, of Jesus' life. And you can, you can tell from the reading we've just had that, that we're getting to the end of one of those little portraits. Uh, we get a kind of summary, but you see verse 35? Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, well, that's very reminiscent uh, of chapter 4 and verse 23. Let me read that to you. He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, One of the things we've said time and again uh, in Matthew's gospel is that that, that Matthew is painting, if you like, with the the colours given to him by the Old Testament. Uh, The new and the old aren't aren't different books. It's not as if the Old Testament is God's first story. uh, And then when that kind of went wrong, he thought, well, plan B, let's start again and and I'll send Jesus. No, Jesus is the continuation of everything that began in the Old Testament. And one of the things we've seen Matthew doing is painting Jesus in colours, if you like, that that remind us of Moses, the great leader of Israel, the great rescuer of Israel. So in the first few chapters uh, of Matthew's Gospel, uh, we we saw Jesus uh, as a baby 
fleeing from, from an evil Gentile king trying to kill him. Do you remember that's what happened to, to Moses too? And Moses, in fact, all the Israelite boys, when they were born, had to escape Pharaoh, the Gentile king, trying to kill them. Uh, Jesus, with Joseph and Mary, flees off into Egypt. Uh, and when they come back, God, or Matthew rather, God through Matthew, quotes uh, the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I've called my son. He quotes the Old Testament, comparing Jesus coming out of Egypt to, well, a bit like the Israelites coming out of Egypt. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, he, he went to a mountain, didn't he? They went to Mount Sinai and, and the, the, the Ten Commandments given, teaching God's people how they ought to live now they've been saved. What does Jesus do? Well, he goes up a mountain and teaches the Sermon on the Mount. That was chapters 5 uh, through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And what we've said uh, in chapters 8 and 9 is we see, well, we see, if you like, what happens next. In Moses' life, what happened next is that the Israelites went into the wilderness. They wandered through the desert and time and time again, they rebelled. In fact, in the book of Numbers that tells that story, God says to his people, 10 times, 10 times you've rebelled against me. God did all sorts of miraculous things, but 10 times the Israelites responded in unbelief. So what do we get in Matthew's gospel? We get Jesus coming and doing 10 miracles. That's what chapters 8 and 9 are all about. 10 miracles that are meant to promote faith, to prompt faith, to grow faith in God's people. Uh, That's why those verses that that, that are very, very similar in chapter 4 and the end of chapter 9 there, if you like at a summary, the bookends of, of what Jesus is doing. He goes around preaching, and then we get the Sermon on the Mount, a bit like Moses, and healing every disease, doing these 10 miracles that are particularly highlighted. And, well, as you, you get a, a little, at least a sort of feel from, from the end of our passage, from our passage today, rather, uh, this time, some people do have faith. Okay? It seems that Jesus is going to be a more successful rescuer than Moses was. So the crowds, in verse 33, are amazed, although the Pharisees grumble. Uh, The blind men who come have faith in Jesus to rescue. Uh, Jesus is going to be a greater rescuer than Moses ever was. Uh, And it seems that that the seeds of faith are beginning to grow in God's people. And so these miracles we're looking at today, the healing of the blind men and and the man unable to speak, are, are... in some ways, the end of Jesus' miraculous work in Matthew's Gospel. Now, there are other miracles, okay, just scattered here and there. But, but the vast majority of them have been here in chapters 8 and 9. And so, in some ways, these are the climax. Okay? They're, 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 they're the, the, the final chapter uh, of this little part of the story, at least, that's meant to give us faith in the Messiah. So, let's just look at them. They're, they're very simple in one sense, but I think they have deep lessons for us. So first of all, verses 27 to 31, very simply, Jesus makes us see. Jesus makes us see. Uh, Last week we saw Jesus had restored a dead girl to life and he moves on. He moves on from that house and these two blind men come to him. uh, And their words are amazing. Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, Who's David? Children, do you remember who David is? Can any of the children remember who David is in the Bible? 
He's in the Old Testament. Abs, who's David? Who's David? Brilliant. He was a king. He was a king. He was a great king of Israel. So if you're the son of a king, what are you going to be when you grow up? You're a prince, yep. And then also, what are you going to be when you're on the throne? A king too. Brilliant, exactly. So Jesus, as when, when the blind men called Jesus the son of David, they're saying, you too are king. Uh, David's died now, so he can't be king anymore. But the new king has come. Uh, fascinating, these blind men are the first people in Matthew's gospel to call Jesus son of David. Uh, Matthew wrote the gospel to persuade us that Jesus is God's king. The very first verse of the book of Matthew uh, tells us that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew 1 verse 1 introduces us to Jesus as the son of David, but no one so far has recognised him as such. Not not the disciples, not not Peter or, or John. Nobody has called Jesus son of David until now, at the, at the peak, if you like, of these miracle stories. And you see the irony? It's the blind men who see who Jesus is. Have mercy on us, son of David. They have faith. They can't see, but they have faith. And, and in many ways, it's their faith that, that is emphasised in this little passage. So initially... It seems that Jesus keeps walking. They're crying after him. You know, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. But he keeps going. He goes inside. He goes into the house. But they keep going. The blind men come to him in verse 28. And so Jesus addresses them. Do you believe? Do you have faith that I'm able to do this? They say yes. And his response, according to your faith, be it done to you. See that emphasis on faith, faith, faith? But these men, these blind men, although they cannot see have faith. If you like, although they're physically blind, they are spiritually seeing. Now, the way Matthew's told these miracles stories, we, we've seen that they come in clusters of three. He tells three stories and then does a little bit of teaching, then three stories and a bit of teaching. Uh, and these last three, the one we looked at last week, the, the, the dead girl raised to life, uh, the blind men given sight, and the man who's deaf and unable to speak, uh, healed. In, in particularly, they're, they're particularly clear pictures of salvation. Uh, yes, they are good news for the individuals involved. You know, it's good to be able to see if you're blind, it's good to be able to hear if you're deaf. But they're doing more than that. They are pictures of salvation. The, the kind of language that uh, the rest of the New Testament will use to describe people coming to faith is the kind of language of death to life. Think of the book of Ephesians. You were dead in your sins, but God brought you to life. Like the little girl was dead, but was brought to life. Or think of the book of Corinthians. Paul tells us that the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But God speaks. The gospel come to us, comes to us and we can see. That's the kind of words that picks up in Amazing Grace, isn't it? I was blind, but now I see. That is a picture of salvation. Uh, Few of us, if any of us, might have ever been physically blind, but we were all once spiritually blind until Jesus comes and gives us sight. But actually, I think the emphasis here, uh, this time, with this little uh, healing incident, 
it's not so much that, that these men can, can see for the first time spiritually, because actually they, they seem to already believe in Jesus. They come acknowledging that he is the son of David and that they need mercy. If you like, spiritually, they, they seem fairly sorted out before they even arrive. So, so what is this a picture of? How is this a picture of salvation? I, I would suggest to you that what it is, is a picture of what Christ will do for those with faith when finally we meet him. This is a picture of what Christ will do for those with faith when finally we meet him. What is it that Christ will do for you if you're a believer? Well, one day Christ will give you sight. You say, well, that's silly. You know, children, you, I can see already. I'm not blind. I don't even need glasses. So why, how is Jesus going to give me sight? Well, Jesus is going to give you sight because one day... He is going to return and will no longer need faith. Uh, right now, children, you know, the call is to believe in Jesus, but, but you haven't seen Jesus, have you? And your dad and mum haven't seen Jesus, and your granny and grandpa haven't seen Jesus, and your great-granny and great-grandpa haven't seen Jesus. On and on and on we can go. No one has seen Jesus for 2,000 years. That's why Paul, one of the apostles, says we live by faith, not by sight. If you like, right now, we're in the position of the blind men at the beginning of the story. We trust that Jesus is the son of David. We trust that he's God's king. We know we need mercy for him, from him, but we cannot see him as he really is. Jesus is, well, where's Jesus, children? Where's Jesus nowadays? Yeah. Brilliant. At the right hand of the Father in heaven. There you go. Someone's been saying their Apostles' Creed. Very good. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You can't see him. You can't see into heaven. Doesn't matter how big a telescope you get, does it? You can't see into heaven. You might be able to see some planets, you might be able to see some stars, but you can't see into heaven. But one day we will see him. The Bible ends, the book of Revelation describes what life will be like after Jesus returns. And it talks about the fact that we will see him face to face. We will see his face. That is the most wonderful destiny. In fact, that is the thing as Christians we, we ought to be most excited about. One day we will see Christ face to face. Uh, that's why faith is going to pass away. Uh, perhaps if, if you're married, you might have had the, the reading from 1 Corinthians 13, the sort of great hymn of love. And, and in the, Paul's celebration of how, it, how, you know, how important love is and how great love is, uh, he says that actually of the three great virtues of the Christian life, faith and hope and love... Love is the greatest because the other two are going to pass away. Uh, one day when Christ returns, or when we die, we won't need to have faith anymore because we will be able to see. We won't need to have hope anymore because what he's promised will have arrived. But we will still love. These blind men come in faith and end being able to see Christ. Now he reaches out, he touches them, and their eyes are opened. In fact, John, as he writes a letter, uh, says that one day we'll be transformed into Christ's likeness because we will see him. It is seeing Jesus that is going to end all your troubles. It is seeing Jesus somehow. It's that vision that seems to be the, the, the method that God uses to transform you into Christ's likeness. Uh, he is so glorious, so wonderful, so beautiful, so astounding that, that just to look on him will transform us. Our sin will be gone. Suffering no more. 
because we will see him. There was a, a young man called William Montague uh, in the 19th century who was blind from the age of 10. Uh, he was an aristocrat, the son of a, uh, son of a lord. Uh, he grew up and he, he met a, a young woman and fell in love and they got engaged. She was the daughter of an admiral. Uh, and he'd never seen her because he was blind. Uh, but it's just about the time the doctors were getting them, themselves uh, sorted. And so th- there was a new surgery uh, developed, experimental. No one knew if it would work. But William Montague went under this surgery. But, but he refused to, to have the bandages taken off. Because the surgery happened just a, a week or two before his wedding day. He refused to have the bandages taken off to, to find out if the surgery had worked. He refused until he was standing at the front of church, waiting for his bride to come down the aisle. And and as his bride arrived, his father took the bandages off and light flooded in. And for the first time, William Montague could see. And what did he see? He saw his bride, the one to whom he'd been promised. One day, the the veils will go. That the struggle you have as a Christian to live by faith, that the doubts that you have, the uncertainties that we all go through, They'll be gone. The life of faith is not forever. And the life of faith is a battle. Children, sometimes it'll be hard for you. There might might be lots and lots of people at school who who don't believe in Jesus and think you're, well, silly to believe. But one day it won't be like that. One day we will see and be transformed. One day Jesus will do for us what he has done for these blind men. Jesus will make us see but he's going to do more. He's not just going to make us see, he's going to make us sing. Look at verses 32 to 34. Jesus is going to make us sing. Uh, the problem this time seems to be twofold. Uh, this man who comes to him is demon oppressed. Uh, we, we don't get a lot of detail about how this works and what's going on. I don't want to speculate too much this morning, but somehow, and I have no idea how, but somehow he has come particularly under the influence of evil spirits. And that seems to have shown itself in the fact that he is mute. Now, the word there, mute, uh, mute tends to just mean he can't speak, and certainly he can't speak, but, but the word underlying it, it also implies that he's deaf. So this man seems to be someone who's deaf and can't speak. He is therefore utterly unable to come to Jesus and ask for help because he can't speak. And he's utterly unable to to hear the good news about Jesus because he's deaf. If you like, he is completely cut off from the good news of the gospel. And yet, Jesus still conquers. Possessed somehow by the demons, unable to hear about Christ, unable to hear, if you like, the preaching of the blind men, son of David, have mercy. Unable to speak and say, Lord, heal me. And yet... Still, Jesus conquers. It's just so simple. It's almost matter of fact, isn't it? Verse 33, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. There's no fuss, there's no fanfare. It just happens. Jesus just does it. Uh, This guy's transferred, if you like, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. And his tongue is loosened. And presumably, too, his ears unstopped. Now, what's going on? Why, why is Matthew including this little miracle? Particularly as it's not particularly spectacular. It's not a long story. Is it? There's no drama. This guy wanders in. Jesus heals him. It's not just that, that Matthew has thought, well, I, I ought to sort of go around the different body parts. Okay, I've done eyes. Uh, we've done the paralytic. His legs didn't work. I've done a kind of fever. I've done skin, leprosy. 
I know, you know, we need to do tongue. Okay, he's not running out of bits of the body to cover. I think there's a very particular reason that Matthew includes this story. Obviously, it's included because it happened, but a very particular reason that it's, that it's here. Uh, keep your finger in Matthew's Gospel, but, but turn back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. Isaiah chapter 35 is on page 595, if you've got the church Bible. Page 595. Isaiah 35. And we're in a bit of Isaiah where Isaiah is promising, or the Lord is promising through Isaiah, that, that one day they're going to return from captivity. Okay, we're not going to get into the depths of the story now, but, but God's people you know, have been captured by a foreign nation, and God is promising that one day they'll be rescued. Now that's why in verses 3 and 4... Isaiah says, strength of the weak hands, make the firm the feeble knees. Say to the, those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Don't worry, you're not always going to be captive. Don't worry, you're not always going to be away from the Lord. Why not? Well, what's going to happen? Verse 4, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What's going to happen when God comes to his people? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verse five and six should be ringing all sorts of bells from this week and indeed from the last couple of weeks if you've been around before. What particular healings show that God is here, that that God has arrived? Well, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Tick. What has Jesus just done? Open the eyes of the blind men. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. What has Jesus just done? Healed the deaf and mute man. And there's the mute himself at the end of verse 6. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And in the middle, the lame man shall leap like a deer. Just a couple of a couple of verses earlier, what did Jesus do? He healed the paralytic, the man who couldn't walk. They're all there. They're all there. Why is that so important? A couple of reasons. First of all, it shows, if you like, the, the purpose of these rescue, this rescue. What is God doing with you? Why has God come to rescue well, the passage goes on. Verse 8, a highway shall be there. A road is going to be built. And it should be called the way of holiness. But where's it leading? Well, we get the answer in verse 10. You know, God has come. He's opened up this road. Where's he taking us to? Well, verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord, those who have been rescued, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Their sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jesus has come. God has come. To, to rescue his people in order to take them home to Zion. Zion is a, another name for Jerusalem, the, the city of God. For us, ultimately, it finds its fulfillment in, in heaven, that the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. God has come to rescue us and give us sight, loosen our tongues so we will come to him in praise and song. That's why I said this part is about Jesus making us sing, not just speak. Yes, he loosens this, this deaf man's, sorry, this mute man's tongue. But it's all part of making 
a people who will sing his praises. When we've had our eyes opened to his glory, what will we do? We will sing. Read the book of Revelation where John looks into heaven. What are people doing all the time? Singing. Song after song of praise to the Lamb. Your, your destiny, you are created, you are saved, not just so that you don't go to hell, but you're saved so that you can worship God and the Lamb on the throne. And singing is a huge part of that worship. That's why it's an important part of what we do on Sunday. It's not that we need to split the prayers up or have a bit of a filler before the, the sermon. This is part of our, our destiny. Uh, we are saved to sing. Jesus opens our eyes to loosen our tongues. And he does so as God. Isn't that striking in Isaiah 35? It's not here the son of David. It's not some human descendant of David alone that's going to do it. Rather, your God will come to you. These miracles demonstrate to us that Jesus is more than just the son of David. He is God. And that is hugely good news, particularly... Particularly if you're someone at the moment who looks at Christ and doesn't see the fuss. You, you might well look at Jesus and hear about him or, or read the Bible and think, what, what, you know, why are my friends so into this? How can they possibly believe this? It, it's tremendously good news for you that Jesus is God. But because what you need is someone with, with all the power of the creator to enable you to understand. Let's be, let me just be really clear here. Did, did you notice in Matthew's Gospel that although the crowds were amazed by what Jesus had done, the Pharisees said Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. They thought he was satanic. They thought he was evil. But they had exactly the same evidence, didn't they? They'd seen the same miracles. They weren't denying the miracles. They had exactly the same evidence, but for them, the evidence had led them to think Jesus was wicked. What that is telling us is that, that faith doesn't come simply by having clear evidence. Evidence is not enough to save anybody. Because our problem is not intellectual. Our problem is not, you know, I haven't had a, 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 a good enough argument to persuade me that Christ is truly God. Our problem is not that there's going to be no one clever enough to show me the way. All of our problem, and it's true of all of us, all of our problem is moral, spiritual, not primarily intellectual. There is no one argument that can persuade everybody that God exists because God is not just the conclusion of an argument. Now, that's not to say there aren't true arguments. There is real evidence. The Pharisees were confronted with real evidence, but it wasn't enough because our problem is that spiritually we are blind and deaf. Our problem is sin, not a lack of brain power. And that's why we need God uh, in the person of Christ to do what he did for these blind men and this deaf, dumb man. We need to cry out to him for mercy. If, if you, let, me, let me speak to you. If, you. if you're not a Christian, and, and what, you need, what you need is to cry out to Jesus to have mercy on you. He will. He is full of compassion. We see that in the next story. He's, he's full of compassion for the crowds. He's not a, a harsh master, a harsh king. He wants people to come to faith, but what we need is mercy, not simply more arguments. If you like, the power to see Christ lies not in you, but in him. So ask him 
for that mercy. He does offer it freely, but come to him as a blind man and ask for sight. That is the only way to find the truth of God. We've blinded ourselves through our sin, and only he, as the creator, has the power to renew us and grant us life. So Jesus makes us see, he makes us sing, and then just very quickly as we finish, therefore, because of this, because he's uh, made people see, he's made them sing and, and speak his praise. Therefore, in verse 35 to 38, he sends out shepherds. Uh, we've seen time and again in, in this little section of miracles that the salvation stories shape the kind of service that, that God's people offer in response. Time and time again, three miracles and then a little bit of what it means to be a disciple. So first time around the cycle in, in chapter eight, the third miracle was that the healing of Peter's mother-in-law who immediately got up to serve Jesus. And so then we got a little bit of teaching on what it means to serve Jesus. Second time around the cycle, the third miracle was the healing of the paralytic. His sins were forgiven. So we then got some teaching about grace and what it means for Jesus' kingdom to be one of forgiveness and mercy and grace. Uh, this time around the cycle, the third miracle is, is one of speaking. Jesus loosening our tongues. And therefore he goes on to address the problem, well, the problem of the evangelization of the world, the proclaiming of this gospel to the world. Yes, Jesus goes through the synagogues uh, of Israel, proclaiming and preaching the gospel, doing miracles, but there are crowds and crowds of people for him to get to. And so he, he looks at them, he's filled with compassion because they are leaderless. There is no one caring for them. There was no one guarding them. That little phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd, is full of Old Testament resonances. Uh, it's, it's almost a direct quote uh, from the book of 1 Kings. It tells the story of the kings of Israel. 1 Kings 22, that when one of the prophets called Micaiah says that actually Israel is going to be like a sheep without a shepherd. He's talking about the, the death of their kings, the wicked king Ahab, uh, who is disobedient. And, and therefore, God's people have got no one to care for them, to lead them. Uh, to guide them in right paths. And Jesus looks at Israel now and says, well, you're in the same state. In fact, in many ways, it's a very similar state. King Ahab was a wicked man who had a wicked wife, Jezebel, who wanted to kill uh, the, the spokesman of God of the day, which was Elijah. Right now, Israel has a wicked King Herod with a wicked wife who eventually do kill John the Baptist, the, the great prophet. Jesus looks around and sees the Pharisees who are meant to be helping God's people, but instead he says, there is no one. And so the crowds are harassed and helpless. And what's his conclusion? The harvest is plentiful. Okay, there are loads of people out there. But so few to go and collect the harvest in. Therefore, verse 38, pray. Uh, 